Today we're going to continue our studies in the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation. Last week we covered basically verses 1 through 5, and today I want to pick up, or 1 through 4. Today I want to pick up in verses 5 through 10. So let me read those verses and just sort of give you a roadmap of what we'll try to accomplish. Beginning in verse 5, it says, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened, it, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. Uh, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb, uh, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, before we look into those verses, and there are five things that we want to focus on from there, uh, I want to make three points to sort of connect us to what we looked at in the first four verses. Number one, uh, you remember that the beast who rises out of the sea reflects to some degree the dragon who empowers him. And of course, the dragon is Satan. So therefore, there is a satanic element to the function and the operation of the beast in terms of the agenda that he seeks to carry out, whether he is conscious of it or not. And as we alluded to on a number of occasions, I don't think this is just a single individual. I think these are, um, the beast is manifest in various personalities throughout uh, redemptive history. And some will probably be a little more intentional in their allegiance to the dragon than others. But more importantly, and we'll see this in some of the things that follow both here in chapter 13 and in chapter 14, that really the ultimate rebellion of fallen humanity is carrying out the agenda of Satan. So therefore it's more man-centered than it is an overt attempt to worship Satan. But here's the second thing that we uh, alluded to last week, and this is seen especially in verse five, um, that the beast is an imitation of the lamb that he is he imitates his death and his resurrection and uh so it's 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 intentional we'll see as i've alluded to before we'll see how that is even more intentional with some of the other uh, images that follow but the beast is presented as an imitation uh of uh, of the lamb uh, i said verse five but actually as we saw in chapter five but then the third thing is um like the lamb who was slain and then resurrected and is the object of worship, the beast becomes the object of worship and adoration. We alluded to all of these things. We fleshed them out in greater detail last week. 
But these things are helpful to remember as we move forward in the narrative here in um, from verses five and following. The beast who is the object of worship and adoration is not only an imitation to the lamb that was slain, but he is also, whether it's intentional or otherwise, in opposition to the lamb. He's in competition with the lamb. So the very purpose for him being a counterfeit is to dissuade the followers of the lamb. And if he could, and he can't, and we'll see some of that, but to offer, to, he's the alternative to the lamb to those who don't belong to the lamb. So that'll be manifest in a number of ways. So there are a number of things that we can pick up uh, from verses five and following. As I mentioned, there are five things in particular, but let me frame it around two passages that we want to look at in conjunction with uh, verses five through 10. Because of the activity surrounding the beast being an object of worship, the reference to him blaspheming God, and you'll see that he even blasphemes the place of God. There are um, some evangelical uh, commentators identify this as the Antichrist. And so I want to pause here for a moment because number one, the phrase Antichrist never appears in the book of Revelation. It is referenced in, uh, in the writings of John, by the way, and that's one of the a couple of places we'll be looking. Uh, John uses the phrase, but he uses it in First and Second John. We don't see that phrase used in uh, the book of, of Revelation at all. Also, the activities of the beast reflect the language that John that Paul uses in Second Thessalonians two concerning the lawless one, or as uh, Kim Riddlebarger in his book. Uh, concerning uh, uh, Revelation, he refers to um, the man of sin. So let's look at at two places or three places. We'll first go to um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'll begin with, um, I'm going to begin with verse 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together uh, together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so and be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order to be condemned, in, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, what Paul does there is really give us a backdrop uh, for all of the things that we've seen thus far in uh, Revelation 13. He indicates that uh, even this, this rebellion of the lawless one who is inspired by and empowered by Satan, who exalts himself in the place of God, who exalts himself above God, who speaks falsehood, and the scripture says that he, uh, he is able to perform lying signs and wonders to draw away those who don't have a love for the truth. So that's one thing. Here's uh, two other places, and both of these come from uh, 1 John. We'll first look at 1 John chapter 2 and uh, verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. But here's what's interesting. In the very next verse, they, they referring to the Antichrist, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might, uh, might become plain that they all are not of us. So this Antichrist, which John says, there are many who have gone out into the world, starts out, in a sense, as being as, as being part of the, 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 the church. But they drifted into other areas, and their teaching is obviously contrary to the teaching that's been passed on by the apostles. But look also in uh, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and we'll read verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, I want to pause there, because that can be understood in a very ambiguous sort of way. How do you test a spirit? And there are a lot of strange things that people think is a matter of testing the spirit. I test the spirit by my spirit. But I don't think that's what John means. It's not something ambiguous. It's not something that's just subjective. But you test the spirit in a particular way. And that's what he goes on to say. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, uh, that does not confess 
Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So you see this testing of what is true and what is not true, this testing of the spirit is not manifest in some subjective sort of way, but it's the, the testing of the spirit is testing the truth of, of what is proclaimed specifically about the person and work of Christ. Now with that in mind, and we'll be referencing back and forth uh, between both uh, John's words as well as Paul, but especially Paul, um, we'll, we'll have, uh, have an occasion to refer to them as we unpack the verses that are before us, verses 5 through 10. So here's the first thing. You notice again that the emphasis is placed on the words that come out of the drag uh, out of the beast's mouth. His words are described as being haughty and blasphemous. We cannot overemphasize this. We saw this in the previous chapter with the image of the beast or the dragon as he pursued the, the people of God, and it was the water that came out of his mouth that he sought to destroy them. Ultimately, Satan's effort to thwart the work of Christ and to bring havoc into the created realm is the very same weapon that he used in the Garden of Eden. He tries to twist the word of God and exalt himself above God. So therefore, the first thing that we see in, in chapter 13, verse 5, the emphasis again is the beast and what comes out of his mouth. And the beast was given a mouth of uttering, a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And he will return to this theme of blasphemous words in the verses that follow. So that's the first thing. That above everything else, when we speak of spiritual warfare, it's not about having enough holy water. And it's not about having blessed cloths or oils or anything of that nature. Our best defense against the, uh, uh, the onslaught of Satan is the word of God. What God has said and what Christ has done. And what God has said explains what Christ has done. And what Christ has done punctuates and fulfills what God has said. It's the weapon that Satan used in the garden to, uh, to deceive Adam and Eve was by twisting God's word. The weapon that Christ used in his temptation in the wilderness, we see him defeating Satan another way in his crucifixion. But at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus is driven into the wilderness where he is basically looking for Satan. He's looking for the bully on the playground. And when Satan comes to him and tempts him, 
Jesus doesn't use any, any divine power in his arsenal, even though he is the word made flesh. But what he does in human flesh like ours, he does what Adam should have done, and that is refute the attacks of Satan with the true word of God. So Satan's attacks, again, even in this point in redemptive history, and I know things are ramping up around the world and we see various things that are, are manifest that the scriptures speak of, but ultimately it still comes down to the, uh, the sufficiency and the fullness of God's word. Ultimately, the attack of Satan will be manifest through words. I was just reading an article uh, earlier about persecutions uh, around the world, and in particular in Laos, which is uh, uh, an eastern country, a Middle East, or an eastern country, and um, you know the, the the people in Laos, the, the nation is ruled primarily by Buddhists. The people, uh, the the main religion in Laos is is uh, is Buddhism, and it's not happening throughout the entire country. But it, they spoke of seven particular families that have been driven from their homes and driven into the wilderness or into the the the, the countryside living in, you know, shacks or whatever, and their family is afraid to uh, give them relief because they are under attack. And, and the purpose is this, if they, because they refuse to renounce their Christian faith. So as we've made this clear all along, there will be manifestations of persecution that are physical. And ultimately the purpose of the physical persecution will be in some instances to get the people of God to renounce him. And those who refuse to do so, may it may cost their lives. That's indicated he, even here in the text. But the primary way that Satan will wage war against the Lamb and those who are united to him will be with words. It will be with blasphemies. And those blasphemies may be, as we saw in Second Thessalonians chapter two, they may be as 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 tools uh, accompanied by signs and wonders, things that are done that will get your attention. But ultimately, the emphasis that is placed here on the attacks of the beast, who is motivated and empowered by the dragon. The primary means of his attack is words. Here's the second thing. There's also an emphasis in these verses on the fact that what the beast does is what he has been given or allowed to do. So in, in verse um, five, the beast was given a mouth. In verse uh, and, and and also in verse five, and it was he it was speaking of the beast was allowed to exercise authority for forty two months. So the question is, who is it that gives the beast authority? You know, where does he get this this authority from? And I think it's twofold. We saw already that he is empowered by the dragon. So he is doing the will of the dragon. 
but all ultimate authority for anything that takes place in the created realm issues from God. Now, that's, that's a very important point in understanding the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not about evil and good and evil locked in a battle, and then we're going to see who wins. The whole point of the book of Revelation, as we saw from the very beginning, is that Christ is presently enthroned, and all of the kings of the world are under his authority. We don't fully understand how and why God uses evil to accomplish his purposes. And when I say evil, he doesn't make evil evil, but he uses it. He uses Satan to accomplish his purposes. So the ultimate, the ultimate authority that allows the dragon to authorize the beast is God himself. And to go back to uh, the passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul kind of gives us a glimpse of this, and this is God's providential use even of the lawless one to accomplish his purposes. And so going back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll pick up with, um, let's see, we'll pick up in verse 5, or excuse me, in verse uh, 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only now he who restrains it. Now that's an important phrase. So when we talk about the dragon, which is Satan, understand that the dragon himself is presently restrained. Restrained does not mean ultimately destroyed. One of the things that John will reveal in, his, in the book of Revelation is the ultimate destruction of the dragon and everyone that's with him. But the dragon is presently restrained. That does not mean he's not active. So uh, he is being restrained. And so Paul, Paul emphasizes this, that uh, he is being restrained even right now. So it says that, um, let no one deceive you, uh, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And then he goes down, let me, let me skip down again to verse six. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is at work. Only, only he who now restrains it will do so until the day of the Lord. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill by the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. So the empowerment of the beast is twofold. 
He is directly empowered and authorized by the dragon who is being restrained and who is allowed to empower the beast. So the ultimate power behind the power is God himself, which brings us to a third thing. You notice also in uh, Revelation 13, as we turn back there, uh, in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, it says that he is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Okay? Now, we've already emphasized the importance of that time span, but again, it corresponds to the span of time from Christ. Now, it gets a little iffy on this. Uh, some would say from the time of his crucifixion or his burial or his resurrection or his ascension. So let's take it from the point of his ascension. From the time of Christ's ascension to the time of his return is characterized in the book of Revelation as time and time times and, and times and a half, or it's referred to as 42 months. Uh, in any event, the point that's being made here is that the activity of the evil one or the activity of the beast that or the authority that has been, been given to the beast is for a specified period of time. And that specified period of time is the whole span of time from Christ's ascension till his return. And by the way, that that uh, lines up with what Paul is saying in, in Second, Second Thessalonians, that the lawless one will continue to be lawless until he's ultimately destroyed by Christ in his second coming. So the second coming is a central doctrine of the Christian religion. And we understand that with the second coming comes the, the time of judgment. Judgment for not just uh, fallen sinners, but judgment for the source of evil in the world, and that's uh, Satan and all that are associated with him. So this time span corresponds to uh, the time of Christ's present rule and reign until he returns. And the idea is that uh, during this period, uh, you notice in verse 7, it says uh, this in this conflict that he will wage war on the saints or the people of God. He has been called, he has been authorized to wage war. So there is never a time until the Lord's return where the people of God are not under attack, whether it's through your own individual temptation to sin and rebel against the law of God or as it relates to hearing competing voices. Truth will always be opposed. And truth will not only be opposed until the time of the Lord's return, but truth will be denied, it will be twisted, it will be distorted. But one of the characteristics of the people of God is their ability to hear from the word of God, the actual word of God that they will have the ability to discern truth from error when it comes to the word of God. It does not mean that every Christian 
will be um, will be able to will be uh, equally strong in terms of apologetics and and understanding all of the arguments and every Christian will not be as great of a theologian as the Apostle Paul. But what Jesus says, I think, is absolutely true, that my sheep know my voice and the voice of another they will not hear. We will be confused at points. We will be in rebellion at other points. But ultimately, the people of God will recognize the voice of God in the word that is open. And, and so understand that there will be intentional conflict. And that conflict, Paul tells the, the elders at Ephesus when he's about to leave them in um, Acts chapter 20, he says, there are those who will rise up that will ravage the sheep. And he says this, some will rise from among you and then others will come from the outside. That's what John is addressing in 1 John, that there are many antichrists who have come into the world. Some of them have come out of our churches. So the point being, truth the truth of God's word, the truth of what God says about our salvation as it relates to the person and work of Christ, the truth of what Christ says to us and about us, that we belong to him, that he will preserve us, that no one can pluck us from his hands. Those truths will always be challenged. And they will be challenged because remember one of the things that we said, that the time span for this conflict is until the Lord returns. The nature of the conflict is, it's, it's primarily about words, but words will, will sometimes sound more true or less true according to external circumstances. So if God says he loves us and that we are saved, and we are his, and we are justified, and we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and we shout to that good news, but our existential experience is as such, that our body is fading away, that we have conflicts within our various relationships, our circles of friends and family. Uh, we don't feel victorious or we are ashamed because we continue to wrestle with continuing sin and we hear this word and then someone else comes along and says that if you're struggling with this and all you need is this, then God's word about our union with Christ can, doesn't mean it will, doesn't mean it has to, and it doesn't mean there's any defect in what God has said. But the truth of the matter is that our circumstances will sometimes cause us to challenge the validity of the word, or we might think, well, maybe he meant this. And someone will come along with what appears to be a plausible word that is in conflict with what with uh, God's eternal word of salvation. So the duration of our conflict is until the Lord returns. The primary nature of this conflict is a word that is contrary to the word of God. And what will validate and punctuate the word of the beast are signs and wonders, are external things that we will ascribe greater value to. In the same way that, that the works of Christ, 
validated his claim as Messiah. There will be substitutionary counterfeit works of the beast that will validate his claim to be the object of worship and adoration. So bringing us to a fourth thing. In verses 7 and 8, we, um, we are given the limitations and the extent of the beast's influence. Notice what it says, that he makes war with the saints, but he has authority over everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. He does not have authority over us. Uh, John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But let's go back to what, what, uh, what we see here in verses 7 and 8 in Revelation 13. And also it was uh, allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth. Now remember we've alluded to before the fact that uh, in the book of Revelation, all who dwell on the earth does not mean every single person in the earth. What it means is everyone who's not in Christ. So those who dwell on the earth, this has been used to indicate uh, that the church is going to be raptured away. No, the church is not going to be raptured away. The church is going to be right here in the middle of it, which was played out in the text. So everyone who dwells on the earth, it simply is identifying them and their continuing union with Adam. And they are not identified with the Lamb. So the extent of his authority is that he has been given the authority to rage war against the saints, but he has been given authority or he's been given the power uh, to make, it was he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, uh, not overthrow them, but to conquer them. But authority was given to him over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So as great as his influence is, he has no authority over the people of God. Even if he has the ability to imprison us, he has no authority. Even if he has the ability to take our physical lives, he has no authority. This is the point that Daniel was trying to make to the king of Babylon when it came to bowing down to the idol. And Daniel says, look, let me just be clear on this. I'm not going to bow. So if it means throwing me into the fire, I'm still not going to bow and I win. But if the Lord should deliver me from the fire, you're probably not going to ask me to bow anyways. The issue is this, brothers and sisters. We may lose physical possessions. We may lose physical health. We may lose our mental stability. But there is nothing that has been purchased by the blood of Christ that the beast can take from you. He can't snatch you from the hand of the shepherd. He cannot reclaim your soul that has been covered by the blood of the lamb. He has no authority over you. 
which is one of the reasons we have to be clear on who the beast is and what he is and what he is not. But the beast has no authority. All he can do is take our lives, but our physical lives, Paul describes it as the outward man that's perishing anyways. And those who have been purchased by the blood of the lamb have been promised a building not made by hands, but eternal in the heavens. And so there is nothing that the beast can do to you that will separate you from the great love of God that you have in Christ. And that brings us to the fifth and final thing here, and we see it in verse 10, where John gives us the bottom line. And the bottom line is that this is a call for Christian endurance. In this span, and by endurance, whatever else we do in our service towards God, whatever else we do in evangelizing the lost, we are to endure in our worship, in our trust, and in our service of God because we belong to the Lamb. Look at the way he closes this out in verse 10 or verses 9 and 10. He says, if anyone has an ear, now doesn't this sound familiar as with the letters, the, the individual letters to the seven churches? If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Um, or if anyone who has an ear, let him hear. Um, and, and, and here's what he says. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. And if anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Now that includes, it could include those who belong to the Lamb. But in the face of those threats, here's the charge. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's the bottom line. Between now and the return of Christ, the activities and the animosity of the, of the dragon will be manifest in various beast-like figures. And I do agree with Dennis Johnson who makes this observation in his commentary on the book of Revelation that as the time draws near for Christ's return, which doesn't mean we'll be able to see, you know, on our calendar when this will be, but there will be an intensifying of this conflict. But even as the conflict intensifies, the bottom line is that our call to worship and our call to serve and our call to love within the context of the covenant community. We are to endure in these things in spite of the activity and the agitation of the beast because that will be with us until the Lord returns. And our hope and our confidence is that there is nothing that we have been given in Christ that can be taken by the beast or the dragon. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Don't fear men that can only harm this physical body that's going to perish anyways. But our hope and our confidence is in the God who can destroy both body and soul. 
And we thank God that by his grace, he has saved us and preserves us in Christ, both body and soul. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thanking you once again for your word. It continues to feed and nourish us, and it prepares us for the world in which we live. We thank you, Father, for the reminders, not only of the sufficiency of your grace, but the severity of the trials that we will face until the Lord himself returns. We pray that by your spirit, you would bring your words home to us and that they would continue to reinforce our trust in our Savior. Thank you for the reminder that even though you have allowed the evil one, even in a restrained way, but you've allowed him activity in this earth, you've also given us a place of refuge even in this time and space. Let us use that refuge for what it is, that we would be strengthened for your service and for your glory. We thank you for all of those who are under the sound of my voice. We pray that your word, we know that your word will not come back to you void. Let it bear fruit as you have appointed. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.